Well, tonight, I have the pleasure of continuing your series in the book of Psalms, and what we're going to look at tonight is Psalms of Trust. You may see Psalms of Confidence, or you may have seen the phrase confidence uh, used previously, but I'm going to tw- switch it up just a little bit. I like the word trust. I think it invokes what we want to accomplish tonight, maybe a little bit more, but they're obviously synonyms. But before we get to the Psalms of Trust, I need to introduce you to a man named Augustine. You've probably heard of him before. No, his name is not pronounced Augustine like the city in Florida. It's Augustine. Let's just get that on the table. Um, So now you are without excuse, right? If I hear you say, well, Augustine said, I'd be like, cities don't speak, right? People do. Augustine was born in Tagast, which is in modern-day Algeria, in 354 AD, so just a couple of years ago. And he lived wildly as a teenager and as a young man. He was extremely promiscuous. He ran after the lusts of his flesh and enjoyed the pleasures of life. But he was constantly encouraged and loved by his mother, Monica, who was a Christian. And she encouraged him to pursue a career, to not make a wreck of his life, but instead to to turn it to something good. And so, while still not a believer... He ended up in Milan, which was basically the, the, the seat of the Roman Empire at the time, as a man with prestige. He was a communicator, he was a speaker, but he was still spiritually empty. In Milan, Augustine ran after pleasure and found it. He sought power and he had it. He looked after notoriety and he received it, but he found them all ultimately fruitless. And he began to listen to a bishop in Milan, a guy named Ambrose, who was preaching from the Christian scriptures. And he wanted to go originally to hear Ambrose speak because as a one communicator listening to a fellow communicator, he wanted to pick up Ambrose's tips. Ambrose was really popular at the time. And so Augustine thought, well, I can learn from this man as a communicator, as an orator. But then he started to actually listen to what Ambrose was saying, and he was convicted. He wanted to be a Christian. Augustine was wrestling with devoting his life to Jesus, but he knew that that meant forsaking the desires of this world and his flesh. And so he went outside one day from his home, distraught, broken, weeping, not knowing what to do. He was wrestling with the idea of repentance and faith. And he says it in his biography, The Confessions, better than anyone else. So let's just listen to what he says. He says, Lo and behold, I hear a voice from a neighboring house. A song is being recited and repeated like the voice of a boy or a girl, I don't know which, saying, take up and read, take up and read. My mood immediately changed and I began to contemplate very intensely whether or not children were accustomed to chanting any such thing in some kind of game. I couldn't at all remember having heard it. And I got up, the impact of my tears having been checked. I took the meaning to be none other than that I had been divinely commanded to open the book and to read the first verse I found. I grabbed it, opened it, and silently read the verse which my eyes first hit upon, which from Romans 13 said, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I neither wanted nor needed to read further. Immediately, with the end of that sentence, a light 
as it were, of certainty poured in my heart and put all my shadowy doubts to flight. Augustine was saved. And he became a bishop himself in the church. He became the bishop of Hippo, also located in modern-day Algeria. And we know Augustine for many, many reasons. His two main works, the Confessions and the City of God, have transformed Christianity in many ways. But he's also a defender of orthodoxy. He defended Christian doctrine from a man named Pelagius, who argued that we as human beings are not innately sinful, not corrupt totally. We're just not that bad. We can actually save ourselves if we work hard enough. Augustine wanted nothing to do with that and argued against Pelagius. And now we know Pelagius not as a defender of the faith, but as a heretic. He also argued against the Donatists. These were a group of Christians who thought that hyper-legalism and adherence to the word by the letter was the only way that one could know they were actually in the faith. And Augustine defended Christ's righteousness rather than our own merit against the Donatists. He also wrote on the Trinity and how Christians should live in the world. This man, whether we know him or not or know his works or not, has affected us profoundly in how we understand the Christian faith how we understand doctrine, how we understand the Scriptures. And it's important for you and me to know who Augustine is because throughout the night I'm going to quote some things from Augustine that I think will help us as we talk about Psalms of Trust. What does it mean to trust? That's a word we throw around a lot. I think a simple definition is to trust is to believe that someone will do what they say they will do. And I'm having confidence that things really are the way they are. And if we're honest, basically, we live our whole lives in a position of trust, right? You're trusting right now that that seat isn't going to break. I'm trusting that as I walk around the stage, it's not going to crumble. I'm trusting that the ceiling is not going to cave in. We live in a state of trust. So why do we have psalms of trust? Why, why is there a genre of the Psalms that cause our hearts and minds to bend back towards the Lord? If you're taking notes, uh, here's basically the main point of today. Psalms of trust are there for us to have confidence that no matter our circumstances, God is working something good and glorious for us. I should read it again. Psalms of trust there for us to have confidence that no matter our circumstances, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in my life, I can have confidence that God is at work and He's doing something good and glorious for me. He's doing something good and glorious for you. And you and I need the Psalms of trust. We need to be reminded of these things because if we're honest, regularly, if we take stock of our life at any given moment, it may not seem that way. A couple of weeks ago, I was with you and we talked about the Psalms of Lament. And the only reason that somebody is going to be lamenting is if things are going wrong in their life, if things are not as they should be. The Psalms of Trust, however, reveal that God is worth trusting. They reveal that what God is really like. And they give us an example to how to put our confidence in God and in His Word. But Psalms of Trust also reveal things in our lives that either try to destroy our confidence in God or to make us put our confidence somewhere else. 
what we'll see when we read through these psalms of trust is that the psalmist is going to say, not in these things, not in these things, but in God. Not in these things, but in His Word, in His promise. So in a very real way, psalms of lament are kind of like a flip side of the psalms of trust. On on the one hand, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about psalms of lament, and I told you that there is not a psalm of lament in the Psalter. There's not a psalm of lament in Scripture that does not have, at least in some way, a turn to say, and yet I will praise the Lord, or and yet I will trust in God. I will have confidence in His name. Psalms of trust or psalms of confidence are kind of the flip side of that. They may mention a problem for a moment, but the grand scheme of the psalm is going to be putting our confidence and our trust in the Lord. And there's a guy much smarter than you and me. His name is Mark Futado. He's written extensively on the Psalms. And so I'm just letting you know, I'm, I'm riffing a lot of this from him um, because his points are way better than I'll ever have. So um, I think the Lord has given him the blessing of, of understanding this Psalm in particular, Psalm 16. So I want to think God's thoughts after him through our brother Mark. And so if you're taking notes, here's the, the first. Actually, before you're taking notes, let's read the Psalm together. Psalm 16. You're like, man, you're really uh, hyping this up. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In this psalm, we're going to see quite a few things about what does it mean to trust. Specifically, what does it mean to trust God. So first, in the first two verses, we see that to trust is to rely on the Lord. This psalm begins with a prayer for protection. David needs God to preserve him. And it may sound like if we just read the first verse that this psalm is going to be a lament. But David says, God, you are the one in whom I take refuge. David does not feel in trouble in Psalm 16. He feels safe. But in order to feel safe, I have to know what's going on. In order to have confidence in my safety, I have to know the one who is protecting me. And David says, God, you are my refuge. He has no need to fear. Because God is the Lord. He's the one in control here. And David recognizes that he's not in control. There are things in David's life that he cannot control. But he knows who can. It's February which still means that some of you have kept up somehow with New Year's resolutions, right? Probably the vast majority of us gave up five weeks ago, right? 
But we think about as a new, still kind of a new semester, you guys are, it's big tests and things like that. And, and maybe even as a college student, you think about all of the responsibilities, all of the opportunities, all of the obligations, all of the privileges, all of the things that come your way as a college student, trying to think about what am I going to do with my life? You think about all of these things that we'll experience in the next day, in the next week, in the next month, in the next year. I mean, where are you going to be in five years? 10, 20. The fact is, students, we cannot know everything. The Lord has seen fit not to give you the script for your life. We don't have what it takes to control our life. The king of Israel, David, he understood this. He understood that I I cannot do this alone. So he relies on the Lord of life. So that he says in verse 2, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Verse 2, that verse tells us of the independence of God. He is the Lord. He has no good that comes to David except from God. Listen to what Augustine says here. He says, what in any case are my goods if not what I have been given by you? And how can the one by whom every good is given be in need of any good? If you and I have received all good things from the Lord, then that means that the Lord needs nothing. There is nothing that we might give to him that he is in need of because he is the source of all good. So what this means for you and me is that we believe as Christians in the aseity of God. If you want to write that down, it's a $10 theological term, A-C-A-S-E-I-T-Y, aseity. And all that means is that God is completely independent. He has no needs outside of himself. You and I are needy, right? Water, food, air, shelter, Snapchat. I mean, I don't know. Fill in the blanks of what you would consider needs. God has no needs. There is no time in which God says, you know, it'd be nice if I had more of blank. Because God is infinite. He is completely independent. He has no need. So what does this mean? It means that we can rely on Him. We can rely on a big God who always has what it takes for His purposes to be accomplished. In your life, in the life of those you love, your family's life. Our God is big enough. He has what it takes. He has the resources to accomplish all of his goals, all of his desires, all of his promises will be fulfilled. We can rely on this God. Second, we see that to trust is to be not only relying on the Lord, but to be devoted to the Lord. It's one thing for us to rest in him kind of passively. It's another thing for us actively to run after him. Who are your heroes? Who who are the people in your life that you look up to and say, man, I want to be like him. I want to be like her. I've got teenagers, I've got youth, I've got a lot of baseball boys, right? So just fill in the blank. These major league players, I've got some basketball boys. Fill in the blank. Like, I want to be LeBron, you know? Well, you know, you're 5'3". About 120 pounds soaking wet. I just don't know, man. Keep praying. You know, like, 
You get some protein, you know. But all of us have heroes. All of us have people that we look up to. It could be a mentor, a parent, a coach, teacher, older brother, older sister. But for David, the people who he looked up to the most are the saints. He found their lives worthy of imitation, so much so that he says, in the saints, I delight. So this is the king of Israel has heard the word of the Lord audibly, has been given promises from Yahweh, rules a kingdom. You think, I don't know who is really above him to look up to, but he says, oh no, the saints are are the ones in whom I delight. Why are the saints worth following? Why would David run after them? Because they are devoted to the Lord. The saints are those brothers and sisters who put their faith in God rather than the things of this world. And he sees the contrast here between verses 3 and 4. The saints are excellent ones. But those who run after other gods are on a path of sorrow. He says the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. So what does he say? Their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out. I will not take their names on my lips. He's saying, look, I've got two options here. I can be devoted to those who are devoted to the Lord, or I can be devoted to those who are devoted to another Lord. One of these is excellent and delightful. One of these is leading to sorrow and ruin. And sometimes for us, we might overcomplicate this. And then there's so many ways that I can go. There's so many things that I can do. There's so many opportunities before me. And the question is, has God given you a path to follow that leads to righteousness, that leads to holiness, that leads to devotion to the Lord? And it's why he commits, once again, to trust God over any other power. Others may sacrifice to these false gods, but not him. Others may pray to them for their needs, but not him. And so the question for you and me is, as we think about that to trust is to be devoted to the Lord, where is your devotion? Where is it? If I looked at your life, what are you devoting it to? Is God the one who has your ultimate allegiance? Because the fact is, our false gods, our idols, they probably don't have proper names. If you're here, I mean, very rarely. I mean, there might be some international students or some folks from other places that are here. Praise God that you're here. But, but for the vast majority of us, our false gods are not named things like Vishnu or Krishna or Allah. But they are no less insidious and no less enticing. What about affection? Do you long to be loved? What about approval? Do you long to be accepted and affirmed? Do you devote your life in such a way that you will garner for yourself the praise of men and women around you? What about comfort? Are you allergic to risky living for Jesus because it may be uncomfortable for you? Socially? Physically? Mentally? What about control? Do you engineer your life in such a way where at the most possible amount of time throughout your day, you are in control of your life. You get to decide 
where you go to eat, you get to decide where you go to school, you get to decide where you get to go, you get to decide what you get to read or not read. I mean, think about your phones. Who gets to decide what's on that front screen? Who gets to decide who you follow? Who gets to decide what news sites you go to? Who gets to decide what other websites you go to? There is no sphere in your life that you have more autonomy and control over than the thing in your pocket. So if I looked at it, if, if, if we looked at it together, where would we find your devotion? Auburn basketball? What are you most devoted to? And David feels the same pangs we do. David feels the same tension that you and I may feel after I ask you those questions because David was a failure. David was not holy. David was not perfect. He was not righteous in and of himself. He was a sinner who transgressed God's law. He sinned against God and placed his devotion in other places. He longed for comfort. He longed for control. He longed for affection. He longed for approval. He knows what it's like to run after things that seem right to a man, but in the end lead to death. He knows what it's like to experience sorrow, but David repented and reaffirmed his confidence in God. And so the the hope for you and me is that today can be that day for you as well. It is not too late. It's not too late for you to say, my heart needs to be set on Jesus and him alone, not the things of this world, not the things that this world can offer me or the desires of my flesh, but in Christ alone. Augustine would tell us that the sorrows that you and I experience are actually the wooings of God himself. Listen to what he says in, in his understanding, in his Latin translation in the Vulgate, um, where it says their sorrows will be multiplied. The word that Augustine uses is infirmities. That word sorrow can also be translated as like an actual injury. And Augustine says their infirmities have been multiplied not for their destruction, but that they might long for a physician. Students, do you feel infirmed? you feel maimed? Do you feel exhausted? We read Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. What a beautiful verse. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, who labor, I will give you rest. It's not too late. It's not too late to trust in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To trust God is to be devoted to him. But not just to rely on the Lord, not just to devote ourselves to the Lord. No, thirdly, we see that to trust is to delight in the Lord. He is a good God. David says that the Lord is his chosen portion in cup there in verse 5. That the lines have fallen in pleasant places. He has a beautiful inheritance. This is not language that you and I use. You know, like I'm asking, hey, Joe, how's it going? He's like, man, my lines have fallen in good places. I, I don't say that. Do you, I, you don't say that. Hey, Susie, how's it going? Man, I have a beautiful inheritance. Okay. I'll send you a support letter soon. Beautiful inheritance, right? Blue blood. No, what does this mean? The language of portions and cups and lines and places would have immediately reminded Israel of the story of Joshua. And after the Exodus, Moses leads 
God's people Israel out into the wilderness, but it's Joshua who leads them into the promised land, into Canaan. And in the promised land is where the inheritance was given to the tribes of Israel. But David isn't concerned with land. No, he doesn't say, this kingdom is my portion of my cup. He doesn't say, this, this reign that I get to enjoy is my portion of my cup. He doesn't say, no, all the wonderful things that I have is my portion of my cup. No, he says, the Lord is my portion in my cup. God was David's treasure. His treasure. He was David's inheritance. Following God and trusting God afforded David the most glorious and wonderful reward that all of creation would pale in comparison to, and that's God himself. Listen to Augustine saying, Let others choose for themselves portions, earthly and temporal to enjoy. The portion of the saints is the Lord eternal. Let others drink of the deadly pleasures. The portion of my cup is the Lord. Students, don't settle for the treasures and trinkets of this world. You and I can appreciate the blessings of creation and all of the good things that the Creator has given for us to enjoy. So go eat that steak. Go watch that basketball game. Go enjoy Chihuahua. These are wonderful, good gifts, but they are not our treasure. God is. And we can use these gifts that our treasure has given us to look through those gifts and delight in Him all the more. You and I will not go up to a cliffside to look at the stars on a clear night and look at the person that we enjoy the most next to us and go, man, look how clear my windshield is. Isn't that awesome? Like, I'm not there to look at the windshield. I need a clear windshield to behold the glory of the night sky. But my eyes are not looking at the windshield. They're looking through it to see something infinitely greater. God has given us, if we've been empowered and indwelled by His Spirit, He has given us eyes to see and ears to hear that constantly, constantly we are surrounded by a creation that sings the glorious grace of our God. Skies above, the heavens declare the glory of God. They proclaim his handiwork. Jesus says, if if these people will stop praising my name, the rocks will cry out. When you and I delight and treasure the Lord, when we delight in him above every other thing this world has to offer, you will have confidence that his ways are better than your ways and the ways of this world. If you treasure God more than you treasure everything else in this world, then you will have confidence that his wisdom is better and higher and greater than the wisdom this world has to offer. If you treasure God more than anything else in all creation, then you will have confidence that his presence with you is more powerful and more valuable than anything else in creation. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. He's my inheritance. To trust in the Lord is not just to delight in Him, not just to rely on Him, not just to be devoted to Him. But next, as believers, to trust is to learn. To trust is to learn from the Lord. 
you and I are not fully sanctified the first time we recognize that the gospel's true. We're not ultimately, once and for all, freed from the power of sin in our life. We're not given this kind of download of all knowledge as it pertains to life and godliness in a moment. But if we trust in the Lord, if we rely on Him, if we devote ourselves to Him, if we delight in Him, then surely it follows that when He speaks, we will listen. I mean, surely it makes sense to us that if He tells us how we ought to live, we will immediately respond with, yes, Lord. And what's David doing here in verses 7 and 8? He's worshiping. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Why is God worshiping? Because it's the fact that God has given him counsel. God's spoken to him. And students, through his word, God has spoken to you. The creator. The one who has no needs. The independent one. The infinite one as regards to space, as regards to time, as regards to wisdom, as regards to knowledge, as regards to power. The king of kings and lord of lords has seen fit in his unfathomable wisdom to reveal Himself to you and to me. I love John Piper. Sometimes he has really witty quotes. One of my favorite quotes is actually a tweet. It's three words. He says, theology is tricky. He's so right. say that as somebody with read a couple things about it it's pretty tricky but another one of my favorite quotes that John Piper says is we soon become bored with familiar glories I think I might have I might have said that a couple weeks ago I've been saying it a lot lately it's been on my mind a lot his point is you and I can for some reason have our vision dulled to the radiance of the glory of the gospel so that things that shined brightly seem distant and faint. Students, we have the revelation of the creator of the universe. He wanted billions upon billions of galaxies full of stars and black holes and quasars and planets and space and nothingness to exist. And all he had to do was speak. And it was so. He, he put light into the universe. He put light onto this planet before he made the sun. You get how ridiculous that is? Light's day one. Sun's like day three. Well, where's the light coming from, man? I, I don't know, but God can do it. And yet, he has chosen to condescend himself and speak to me. Not only to speak, but to invite. And say, I want a relationship with you. No one's good. No one seeks God. I'm not knocking on his door. Going, hey man, it'd be really cool if we were bros. No, the Lord is the one who pursues me. 
I'll pursue him. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. I'm a child of wrath. Do we realize what a great wonder this is? That the God of the universe speaks to you and to me. And not just speaks, he counsels us. He teaches us how to live. If, if you want to make movies, okay? Say you want to be a filmmaker. You go to school, you want to go to film school, and for whatever reason, you get a FaceTime call with Steven Spielberg and J.J. Abrams and Martin Scorsese, and they're like, hey, we're going to be in Auburn tomorrow. Heard you're in film school. Would love to take you to lunch. Maybe answer any questions you might have about like filmmaking and stuff. You know, you interested? What would your response be? Oh, man, I... And let me pray about it. Uh, you know, I got class, and uh, I'm not doing too hot in this lab, and so I still don't know, man. I, I'd love to, but no, you'd quit Auburn. You'd quit school. School is for fools at that point because you have three titans before you saying, I want to teach you what it is that you long to do the most. Why would I drop everything? Why would you drop everything? Why? Because these men are masters of the craft. They know all that you need to know. And so here, we have the God of life. The author of life. Who has joyfully revealed himself to you and to me through his word inspired and most clearly in his word incarnate the Lord Jesus we have it right in front of us and he's inviting you and me to learn how to live not just how to live how to live rightly This verse continues by showing us that David is self-taught. He says, in the night, my heart instructs me, verse 7. Why is it that his heart instructs him? It's because he has a heart that's set on following the Lord. David's new heart has been recalibrated, not to the things of this world, but to the things of God. He's hidden God's word in his heart. His heart is not supreme. It's not as though his heart just comes up with novel stuff that David goes, hey, that sounds cool, right? He knows what that's like. That's what happened with Bathsheba. That's what happened with Uriah. No, his heart is set on the things of God and set on following the instruction of the Lord. And verse 8 shows us, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. It shows us that David's commitment is to never get ahead of God. He is not the master. God is. So he's going to set the Lord always before him and say, God, I want to learn how to live rightly. I want to live in a way that gives you honor and glory. And so what does that mean? I'm going to follow you. I'm not going to get ahead of you. And not only am I following you, I can follow you because I know that you're also beside me. And so when I want to go another way, when I think I see a shortcut in the path, you're beside me and you're leading me and guiding me. Students, God wants to guide you. 
by His Word and by His Spirit into life. Into satisfaction. To a well that will never run dry. Will you trust Him? Will you put your confidence in Him? He's proven Himself to be trustworthy. And I'm convinced that He knows where He's going. Can't say the same about the voices that I hear in the world. I mean, think they know where they're going. The God that we see in Scripture knows all of my days before even one came to pass. All of them are written in His book. Oh, why would I not follow Him? Why would I not learn from His counsel? Why would I not sit at His feet? It leads us next to say that to trust is rejoicing in the Lord. To trust is rejoicing in the Lord. Where does all of this lead? Our faith in God, our lives spent in devotion to His Word, and our commitment to treasure Him more than anything. Where is our trust leading us? Good news, it leads to death, and then it leads to everlasting joy. It leads to death, but then it leads to joy. Real joy, not fleeting pleasures, settled joy. David says here in verse 9, that my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. His flesh dwells secure. Why? How can David say this? David doesn't know the future. He doesn't have the script. How can he say that his whole being rejoices and that his flesh dwells secure? Because he knows that God will not leave him or forsake him. Verse 10 reveals to you and me that it's not just his flesh that David is confident that God will keep alongside with him. It's his soul as well. David's soul is not the only thing that matters. It's his body as well. He says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, let your Holy One see corruption. But he says, my flesh dwells secure. David's whole being, body and soul, Material, immaterial, physical, spiritual. However you want to delineate those things, everything that David is, is glad in God. But here's the problem. David died. He died. His body was subject to the pangs of death. So how is David able to say this? How is David able to say with confidence, my whole being rejoices in him. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. How can he say this? Answer, the resurrection. If you've been looking for Jesus in this psalm, look no further. David is somehow convinced that death does not have the last word for those who trust in the Lord. 
So flip over with me to the book of Acts. Surprise, surprise. Something that you guys are totally unfamiliar with. Acts chapter... Twenty-two, I believe. No, Acts chapter two. Goodness gracious, Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two, starting in verse twenty-two. We're going to read a bunch. That's okay. It'll make sense. Let me give you the context. Pentecost is happening. Uh, spoiler alert, the Spirit came, just like Jesus promised. And now the apostles, Peter especially, is speaking to the men of Israel. He's speaking to those who have gathered to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And he's speaking in a way, somehow, that's kind of undoing the Tower of Babel as a result of our sin, that through the Spirit, those that have been divided are now being united together, so that Peter is speaking in his own language, and no matter what anybody else's language is, they understand him, which is weird enough. But in Acts chapter, 20, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22, this is what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or Sheol. Let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter has witnessed what David looked forward to. Resurrection. Both of them trust God to do the impossible. And that trust, that devotion, that confidence was overflowing with joy and the promise of eternal joy. God makes known to you and to me the path of life. In His presence, there's fullness of joy. All of us in this world, it is endemic of the human condition that we are looking for joy. Now you know where to find it. You don't have to wonder anymore. You find joy in the presence of the Lord. 
Augustine looked all over the place for joy. He looked in pleasure and lust. He looked in status and notoriety. He looked in achievement, career goals, fame, wealth, security, legacy. He looked in all of those places and they came up empty. So listen to how Augustine starts his biography, The Confessions. Speaking of God, he says, You move us to delight in praising you. For you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Students at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Soon I pray that tonight would be the night that for the rest of your life you would commit by God's grace to trust Jesus for your joy. That you would know with confidence that no matter your circumstances, God is working out something for your good and for his glory. Something glorious and good in your life. Look to him for your pleasure. Look to him for your delight. Rely on his strength and not your own. Consider him your most valuable treasure. Cling to Christ and enter into the joy of the resurrection that is yours in him.